Thank you very much, Alora, for reading. I, I actually only intended that, uh, that the reading would go to verse 17, but I'm actually glad you read the whole chapter because uh, it's significant to what we're going to, uh, what we're going to think about this morning. Um, we've been talking about how uh, David, when he sinned against the Lord, he would face consequences for that sin. We, sorry, I should back up. Some of you maybe don't know where, what we're doing here. Uh, we've been in a series on the life of King David. We've been going through uh, his life, actually, I think since sometime in June. And the first part of the series was all about David's sort of rise to prominence and to power and authority in the nation of Israel. We saw him as this, this incredible a godly man, a man after God's own heart who had done amazing things for the Lord and for God's people. And then in the last few weeks, we've seen sort of David after he finally becomes king, we've seen him go from these uh, dizzying heights to these incredibly low lows. And last week we saw how David's sin with Bathsheba, uh, that famous sin of adultery and murder, um, was going to translate into trouble in his life. Sorry, just my watch or series. Someone was talking to me. I don't know why. Um, anyway, his house was going to be troubled. His kingdom was going to be troubled. And then we saw a major example of that last week when Absalom, his own son, tried to precipitate a coup against King David and take over his uh, his role as king of the nation of Israel. And we saw how God was using these events to discipline David. So the consequences of his sin were meant to discipline him, to make him more the man that God wanted him to be and more the king that God wanted him to be. After all, he is a man after God's own heart. Well, what does that look like? And, and the consequences of his sin were disciplining him in a way to make him more and more a man after God's own heart. And today, in the story that we're looking at together, what we see is we see the progress that David is making in that very thing. This is near the end of David's life. He is older. He is a more mature king. He is a more mature politician. But most importantly, he is a more mature man of God. Now, you read the story and you go, uh, this is an example of David being a more mature man of God. It doesn't look, so, look like it, right? Because, I mean, it's about David screwing up again. It's about David sinning again, but it actually is. Now, the reason that's hard for us to see is, is because we just do not know our Bibles the way that the original readers of this story would. You need to, to really know the whole story well in order to understand how that's the case here. Because you see, there's, there's a parallels in this story to other stories in the first and second Samuel book, so to speak. And you need to know those to see how the how uh, to see how David is making progress in this passage. So we need to do a little bit of work. Let's let's look together at what this story tells us. In the very beginning of the story, in first uh, uh, verses one and two, it says again. 
the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So, let's stop right there. Already we've got a couple of problems. The first one is this. Why is God angry? Why is God angry at, at David and at the people of Israel? Well, the answer is we don't actually know. No, no scholar has been able to really figure it out. We don't know. But probably the bigger problem is the one where it says that God, his anger burns, and he incited David against them. This is a story about David sinning. And it looks like the author is saying that this was God's idea. What in the world did we do with that? Well, 1 Chronicles 21 actually retells this story as well. And it gives us a little more detail into what was going on behind the scenes. And in 1 Chronicles 21, it says in the first verse, it says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying this is easy for us to reconcile. But what I am saying is, is that the Bible shows us something called concurrence. And what that means is, is that God is absolutely sovereign over everything that happens in the world. There is no surprises to God. It's not like God says, whoa, I didn't know that was going to happen. I better figure out how to compensate for it. He is sovereign over absolutely everything including the sinful acts that national leaders commit or your kid commits or you commit. But the Bible says that he is also not the author of sin, even though he's sovereign over absolutely everything. And what it mean, what, how the Bible sort of harmonizes this is it says that, that, that there are two beings at war behind the scenes in the, in the spiritual realm. There is God and there is Satan. And every part of the universe, every inch of the universe, every moment in the universe is being contested by God and by Satan. And in situations like this, God removes his restraining hand on what's happening in the world and allows Satan to accomplish at least a little bit of what he's trying to do. And so 1 Chronicles 21 shows us that it is Satan who is the one who actively incites David towards this sin. He, he as we've said in other contexts, you know, he sings the note of Satan's, or of David's heart. In other words, David has something going on inside him, and I'm going to tell you what that is in a few minutes. He's got something going on inside him, and Satan recognizes what that thing is, and he kind of he sings the, to, the, to that note in David's heart to get him to do this thing that God, who is standing back and is sovereign over absolutely everything, God is allowing to happen because it's going to accomplish his ultimate plan. That's what I'm saying. It's hard for us to get. I, I totally understand. But hopefully you'll see that this works out in a few minutes when we get to the end of the sermon. So, David falls for Satan's idea. And he says, Joab, I want you to go make a census of all the fighting men and the people in uh, the nation of Israel. Now, notice something. Joab is the guy who says, don't do it. Don't do it, man. 
may God grant you a mighty, mighty military power, but don't do this thing. Now, Joab says this. Joab's popped up in our stories over the last few months, and one of the things that we can say about Joab is that he's kind of a slimy character. He's David's nephew, he's commander of the army, and he seems to have very little scruples. Uh, he happily went along with David when David said, hey, put Uzziah near the uh, front of the line so that uh, he ends up dying, or Uriah, sorry, not Uzziah, Uriah, near the front of the line so that he ends up dying when you pull back on him and go, okay, I'll do that. He's the one who takes out Absalom, even though David said, don't do it. Joab, of all the people, says, don't do this. Why? Well, remember I said we need to know our Bibles. There's a parallel story to the story of 2 Samuel 24 in 1 Samuel 15. At that time, Saul is king. And God comes to Saul and he says, I want you to destroy the Amalekites. And I want you to wipe them out and leave nothing behind. Okay? Like even the livestock's gotta go. Now, this is a problem for a lot of people when they read the Old Testament and they think, man, God is nasty and vindictive in the Old Testament. Why is he like that? I can't believe in a God like that who is just so cruel and so heartless. He seems he's mean. But listen to me. First of all, the Amalekites were a wicked people, a very wicked people. Think of all the things that you think are really, really awful. Child abuse, child molestation. How about child sacrifice? Wouldn't you say that that's about as, as bad as it gets? The Amalekites were proponents and conductors of that kind of behavior. And they had been given opportunity after opportunity to repent of their ways, and they had refused to do so, and finally God wanted justice. And you think to yourself, whoa, what do you mean justice? How is wiping them out justice? Well, listen to me. In ancient cultures, the way that ancient peoples operated was basically on the principle of might makes right. So you're one nation, and you see a neighboring nation, and you assess that neighboring nation, and you say, hmm, they're smaller than us, and I think they're weaker than us. We have a pretty big army. They have a pretty small army. And so we have the right to go into that nation, and we have the right to conquer them, kill all the men, take all the women and the children and all their livestock and all their possessions, and use those things to make our nation stronger. And if they lose and they get wiped out in the process, well, them's the breaks. Might makes right. Tough break for them, but we just happen to be stronger. And this is what every single nation on the earth was doing at this time. Israel was unique in that it was the only nation that operated on a different basis for their, what you could call, national consciousness. God was saying to the nation of Israel, you are going to be different than every nation around you. You are going to find your confidence, not in your military and not in your ability to destroy your enemies. No, you're going to find your confidence in me. Sort of the hub of your national consciousness is not going to be exploitation and power. It's going to be justice and dependence. It's a huge difference. So when God tells Saul 
to wipe out the Amalekites. His concern is justice. He says you are to destroy everything because you're not to go in there and enrich yourself. You're not to go in there and try to, try to take from the defeated Amalekites their women and their children and their stuff so that Israel becomes stronger. No way. You are not going to put your hope in your military might. You are going to trust me. I'm your strength, not your army. But Saul doesn't listen. Captures Agag, that's the king of the Amalekites. He keeps all the livestock. And he shows that he's not trusting God for his confidence. He is putting his trust in the nation, or, or uh, he is acting like the nations around him and putting his trust in his military might. So he's moving from a position of justice to a position of power, from a position of mercy and dependence to a position of rights uh, is what's, or might, sorry, makes right. Now, fast forward to our story, 2 Samuel 24. David commissions this census of fighting men. He's sort of, he's starting to do the same thing as Saul. He wants to know, how big will my army be? How powerful am I in comparison to the nations around me? I want to be ready in case something happens. I want to have a standing army ready to go. And God says to him, don't you dare have a standing army. Don't you dare muster your military might like the other nations. Not by night might, not by chariots, not by fighting men, but by my spirit you will live. Your confidence is meant to be in me. I desire justice and mercy, not exploitation and power. That's supposed to be the controlling hub of my people who are a people set apart from the nations of the world. You're supposed to be different, David. And now, here's this seasoned, mature, wise king. He's not young and impulsive. He's been around the block a few times. This is not his first rodeo. He should have known better. And yet, here he, he is, sinning, and sinning big time again, looking to his own resources, not looking to God. All right. That's the context. That's my introduction. No, I'm kidding. That's, we're, we're, we're past the introduction. But we are at a point of application. Let's apply this for a minute. I'm going to give you what I'll call an indirect application and a direct application. First of all, the indirect application. After all this time, after all this education, after all this discipline that David has undergone, after all this maturing, that he's undergone. David still sins. Why? Because that is what we do. The Bible says that every single one of us is a sinner. And that over the course of our entire lives, we are going to sin. We are going to fail. We are going to mess up. And you ought not be surprised at that. Now, now understand, this is not an excuse. I'm not, I'm not making an excuse for sin. And the Bible doesn't give 
your sinful nature as an excuse for your sin either. Paul in Romans 6, he says, what? Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. This is not an excuse to sin. I'm talking to three types of people in particular right now. First of all, this is important for non-Christians who look at Christians and say, you guys aren't much different than the rest of us. You guys do things that are wrong. You guys are selfish. You guys lie. You guys drink and party and involve yourself in sexual immorality. You guys are greedy. You're, like, you're just like the rest of us. And Christianity must not be true because, because you guys are sinners. You guys are bad folks. You guys are imperfect, just like the rest of us. In other words, Christianity can't be true because I've met too many Christians who aren't actually that good. Respectfully, what that means is, is that you do not understand the gospel. You don't get it. Because essentially what you're saying in your head, you may not realize this is what you're saying, but what you're saying in your head is that Christianity and religion is essentially a form of self-help. It's, it's a way of improving yourself. You get religious, you discover Christianity, to become a better person. It helps you get over your habits, or maybe you have an addiction problem, or maybe you are really bad at relationships or something, and, and you kind of get involved in this religious thing in order to deal with that. It's, it's, it's a way to improve yourself. Now, it's true, Lord willing, that if you are a Christian, you, you, will, you will fight sin. We'll get to this in a minute. You will seek to not sin and seek to do what God wants you to do. You will grow in holiness. But you've got to understand, that's not what Christianity is at its most foundational level. It's not what it is fundamentally. Fundamentally, the Christian faith, fundamentally what Jesus came to do is to provide salvation from God's just penalty for our sin. Christians know, this is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, basically. A Christian knows that there is a God who has every right to condemn me for the way I have lived my life and cast themselves on God's mercy in Jesus Christ because they know they're a sinner. So that's the first kind of person that I'm trying to explain this to. The second kind of person I'm trying to say, explain this to is, is what I'll call overly guilty Christians. So you beat yourself up over your sin constantly. You say to yourself or you let Satan who comes and speaks to your heart and to your mind and says, you did it again. How can you call yourself a Christian when you did it again? You've been a Christian for this long and you're still acting like that. You're still, you're still lashing out in anger or you're still slipping into gossip or you're still falling into lust. How in the world can you be a Christian? And you are utterly demoralized and you begin to wonder yourself, do I really believe and, and why am I not a better Christian than I, than, I sh than I am? I should be a better Christian than I am. What is wrong with me? And your conscience is so weighed down by your guilt that you need to be reminded that the gospel is that you are now, if you believe in Jesus Christ, listen carefully, those of you who want to know what it means to be a Christian, 
If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are now free from the penalty of sin. You are being freed from the power of sin. And one day when Jesus returns, you will finally be freed completely from the presence of sin. You are currently freed from the penalty of sin. You are being freed from the power of sin. And one day you will finally be freed from the presence of sin. Don't be surprised that you must spend a lifetime battling your sin. But understand, you're always doing that in the context of having been freed from the penalty of that sin. And so for every one look at your sin, as, as, as Robert Murray McShane said many years ago, for every one look at your sin, take ten looks at your Savior. That's the second type of person who needs to know this. And then thirdly, Christians who have been shocked by the sins of Christians. I'm thinking of parents, in part, who can't believe that their kid did what their kid did. I mean, we raise our kid well. Good household. They've had a good example laid before them. We, we've tried hard to teach them right from wrong, and we've always encouraged them to choose right over wrong. And then when the kid does something wrong, you're shocked and astounded. Holy smoke, my kid's a sinner. Maybe, uh, maybe you're hard on your siblings. Or maybe you're hard on your friends. Look, we are all called to holiness, but remember, guys, remember the long game. We are all works in progress. You know that, that cheesy line you've heard? Be patient. God's not finished with me yet. It's cheesy, but it's true. It's not an excuse to continue to sin, but it is a reminder that we are sinners. Okay, that's the indirect the indirect application. Here's the direct application. What was David's sin when he called this census? What, what did he do that was so wrong? His ultimate sin was basically idolatry. He was looking to military might, to military power for his security. He wasn't looking to his Lord for his security. At the heart of every sin that we commit is the sin of idolatry. Martin Luther said, you actually break the first commandment whenever you break any of the other commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, God says. That's the very first thing he says. And then he tells us a whole bunch of other things. And Luther says that whenever you break any of the other things, you've already broken the first one. You have had another God before him. You've had gods for God. Let's test this. The Bible calls us to radical generosity, like radical generosity. The average Canadian gives about five to $700 a year away. That's not even scratching the surface of what God calls us to do with our generosity. Why? If you're not generous, and I don't know if you are or you aren't, that's between you and God, but if you're not, why aren't you? 
Isn't it because on one level anyway, money is your security? You think to yourself, well, if I have enough money squirreled away, then I know I'll be okay. What about in your relationships? Maybe you're the kind of person who can never say no. You're a bit of a doormat, frankly. You can't say no when people ask you to do something. You stretch yourself thin with your time and commitments. Why? Could it be? Could it be that you desperately want the approval of people? Or maybe you're like really harsh and demanding in your relationships. Maybe you're the kind of person who can be unduly hard on others and have extremely high expectations for them. Why? Could it be that, that you have issues of control, that you need to be in control, and that's kind of a, a, an idol for you? Listen, the Christian life is like playing musical chairs. You go to a kid's birthday party, and you, you, play, you set up musical chairs, right? There's five kids, and there's four chairs, and you turn the music on, and, doo -doo 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 -doo, and they walk around, they walk around, and then all of a sudden you turn the music off, everybody sits on a chair, one kid's left out, and you finally get down to one chair, two kids, music's playing, around and around they go, then the music turns off, and the next thing, you have two rear ends in a mighty battle for this one chair. And the Christian life is the battle for allowing God and God alone to sit on the throne of your heart. And there are always other things vying for that place. The sin of idolatry sits behind every other sin that we commit. Okay. There's our applications. We see that David has sinned, but I said that he made progress, right? We don't want to stay on a sour note. We want to see this progress, right? So where, where's the progress? Well, 10 months, almost 10 months after the census begins, Joab comes back and he says, David, we got an army, man. 800,000 Israelite fighting men, 500,000 fighting men in Judah. We have got a huge army. And what does David say in response? It says in verse 10, David, in just hearing the report, he was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Literally, where it says conscience-stricken, literally it says that his heart was smitten. His, it smote his heart. And he sees his sin. And verse 17, he just says, I have sinned against the Lord. This is very different from Saul. Remember I said in 1 Samuel 15, Saul was supposed to wipe everything out in his battle with the Amalekites, and he didn't do that. And when Samuel came to him and said, what have you done? I hear the bleating of, of sheep, etc. Saul says, look, I, I did 95% of what God wanted. And I held 5% back, I know. But the 5% I held back, I am going to use that actually for God's glory. We're going to make a sacrifice to God. It's going to be for his glory, etc. What he does is he, he minimizes his sin and he justifies his sin. And that is precisely what we do when we're confronted with our sin. Very often, 
I've had a lot of interaction with alcoholics over the years. And almost to a man, because it's been mostly male al alcoholics that I've interacted with, almost to a man, they will say to me, you know, one thing you need to realize that if, a, if an alcoholic says they've had four beers, it means they had 14. They minimize their sin constantly. It's not as bad as it looks. It's not as bad as it sounds. That's what we do. And it's not alcoholics. That's what we do. We minimize our sin or we justify our sin. We say, man, you don't understand the pressure that I have been under lately. Yes, I know that that was wrong, but you got to understand she has been so crabby the last few weeks. Or he just ignores me. It's like I'm not even there. That's Saul. True repentance owns what you did, okay? And that's David. Did you know that David could have appealed to the book of Numbers, chapter 1, where God tells Moses to take a census of the fighting men of Israel? It's been done before. Precedent has been set. David could have appealed to precedent, but he doesn't. He's grown. He's grown up in his faith, and therefore he, he owns it, and he recognizes the sin himself. You'll remember with Bathsheba, he commits this terrible sin, and then Nathan has to come to him, tells him this story about stealing a sheep uh, from this poor guy, and, and David is all upset and angry about it, and then what does Nathan say? He says, you are the man. That's what happened that time. Here, David says, I'm the man. I am the man. And he does it before he's confronted by a prophet. David has matured in his faith. Principle, people. The more mature you are in your faith, the faster you repent. I'm just going to say it again. I'm going to let it sit. The more mature you are in your faith, the faster you repent. Chief Christians are chief repenters. Here's why. The more you know about God, the more you will know that you are a sinner in need of God's grace. The two things grow Concurrently, yeah, I think I'm using the right word. I'm looking at Mark to nod for me. <laughs> yes, I'm doing this right? Okay. The two things grow concurrently. The more you realize how wonderful God is and the glory of God, the more you realize that you're a sinner, and, and therefore the quicker you are to repent and acknowledge your sin. You see, you'd think that the more mature you are as a Christian, the less you'd sin, and therefore, the less you'd have to repent of your sin, right? But it's actually the opposite. The more you see of God, the more you see of your sin. And therefore, the quicker you are to be repentant and to be humble and to be gracious towards other sinners. And on top of that, we see that David, he quickly submits, right? Gad comes to him and he offers these three options. That's in verse 13. Let me just, it's been a while since you heard it. Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land or three months of fleeing from your enemies? Excuse me. While 
they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land. Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. He's given three options. And notice that David does not argue. He simply seeks mercy. Mercy, when you're looking for mercy, the, the underlying that seeking of mercy is knowing in your heart that you don't deserve it. You don't argue. You don't negotiate. You simply submit. I've, I've dealt with, uh, and I've helped counsel, and I've walked alongside several men who uh, did something really bad in their marriage and hurt their wives deeply. And it's very easy to tell who's, which man is truly sorry for what they've done and which man has not gotten to that place yet. The one who's truly sorry for what they've done, what you see they, they do is they're willing to do whatever is asked of them, whatever is required of them, whatever is expected of them to rebuild trust. They've broken trust in their relationship. They know that they deserve rejection. They know that they deserve punishment. They know that mercy, an appeal to mercy is saying, I don't deserve the kindness that you give me. And so they say, whatever she wants, whatever I have to do, whatever she requires of me, I do it with no belly aching, no complaining. I just do it. And the wives are not vindictive and they're not trying to, to stick it to their husbands. They're, they're scared. They've been hurt. They're afraid. They don't trust their husband. When you break trust, it's the worst thing in the world in a relationship to lose trust. And when a woman, when a wife says, I am willing to reconsider that trust might be rebuilt, here's the things I need to do. It's the husband who says, whatever you want, that's the one who's truly repentant. The one who says, for how long? Is the one who has not gotten it yet. What does David do? In verse 14, he says this. I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord. For his mercy is great. David has a bad choice in front of him. He's in a confusing situation. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know which choice is the best choice to make. One thing he knows, God is merciful. He knows that. And so he, in an act of faith, he just flings himself on God's mercy. Because he knows that the only thing that you can appeal to when God is angry with you is his mercy. Please hear this. The only hope for anyone against whom God's anger is kindled is to cast yourself on his mercy. Listen to these words from John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Amen? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Amen? Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Amen? Amen. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. 
because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Amen. Our only hope is the saving work of Jesus Christ. Not our good works, not our sincerity, not our positive attitude, not our generosity, not our humanitarianism, only faith in Jesus Christ, only the mercy of God. But the cross is a picture of the mercy of God as Jesus stands with arms open wide to anyone who will fall into them. All right, back to the story. I don't know if you see this, but what we see in David is actually a man who foreshadows a perfect king. There's this weird thing happening in verses 15 through 17, right? This plague kills 70,000 people. Then the angel comes near to Jerusalem and we, it's the Lord is telling the angel to stop. David is begging the angel to stop. It's all sort of happening at the same time. And this angel stops at the threshing floor of Arona. And David sees the angel and he says in verse 17, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. David wants to spare Jerusalem. Obviously, many people have died already, but if the plague, if this angel strikes the heart of Jerusalem, then the kingdom is definitely going to fall. And so David is willing to stand in the gap, you know. Before, he was willing to die in place of his son. He was willing to die for his son and his, in order to bring his son back. And now he's willing to take the punishment for the people. But you see, he can't bear the weight of sin. We've seen that already. The weight of their sin is way too big and he is too small. So what's going on here? Again, you got to know the story. Well, you got to know your Bible. I, and I didn't, I didn't know this until I looked it up. Okay, So don't feel bad if you didn't catch this. The angel is at this threshing floor of Arana. Well, what's so significant about that? It happens the ancient historical place known as Mount Moriah. You go back to the book of Genesis. And Abraham is called by God to take his son Isaac up to the peak of Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him there to God. And Abraham does this. He takes his son all the way up to the, to the peak and he takes the wood and Isaac says, we have the wood and we have the fire. We don't have a lamb. How are we going to get a lamb? And Abraham says, don't worry, the Lord will provide. And lo and behold, as soon as they get up there, Abraham grabs his son and he puts him on there and he pulls his dagger and he's about to actually kill his own son because God told him to do it and God said, stop! Don't do it! God provided a ram in the thicket and he said, I know Abraham, you love me. I know that there is nothing in your life that you would, there is no idol that stands between you and me. God relented. And this threshing floor of Arana 
is one day going to be the place on which Solomon builds that great temple of God and the altar on which the animal sacrifices would be made would stand right there. The sacrifices that were made for the people's sins. You see, God could relent. God could stop as David begged him. Because one day, God would not stop. His hand would come down. The sword of his justice would come down on his own son. God did not send his son to destroy evil with the sword. Instead, he sent him to take the sword himself. To destroy evil without destroying us. And though David couldn't see clearly what you and I can see clearly, if, if we get that, if you know that, that, that he will not put on his hand on you when you repent, because only a short distance from that threshing floor, God made a perfect and complete sacrifice for sin in his own son, Jesus Christ. When that sinks into your heart, that's the beginning of that maturing process. You know, sometimes I get asked, why do you always end at the cross? And it's because I want you to know the sermon's almost over. No. It's because the cross of Jesus Christ is not just the beginning of our faith. Some of you have been Christians for many, many years, maybe decades. And we can run the risk, if we've been Christians for many, many years, even decades, we can run the risk of actually saying, yeah, 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 the cross, I know about that. Now what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live? Tell me to do the right things. We can fall back into works righteousness so quickly because that's the fundamental default mode of our human heart. And so we end at the cross because it's at the cross where we, we are reminded it is finished. You, me, need do nothing to receive God's love and grace. In other words, the cross is not just the beginning of our faith, it is it is the place of the daily meditation of our faith. It is the end of our faith. It is the core of our faith. The finished work of our Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you and thank you for the cross of Jesus and for how through it you mature us. As we meditate on it, as we go deeper into its significance, Father, you grow us in holiness. You make us more holy. You make us love you more deeply. You make us serve you more committedly. Do that for each and every one of us here today. Those of us who maybe don't know you in a saving way yet, I pray for them that they will see in the cross your invitation to lay their deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and to stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. In Jesus' name, amen. So typically what we do here uh, at Grace Valley is uh, at the... Oh, ha! If you are a youngster, a young person in grade 5 or grade 6, now is the time for sermon breakout, where you will go to the Safe Families room with your leader 
you will have a little conversation about the content of today's message and how it applies to you guys. So you can do that. And anybody can go. You don't have to sign up. So if you're a guest here and you want to check it out, go for it. There's snacks. Good ones, I'm told. And the rest of us uh, who are still in the auditorium here or the sanctuary, please, if you have any questions about the message, for questions for clarification, anything like that, now is the time you can ask them. So my number, can we get my number up on the screen? You can text my number uh, if you don't want to raise your hand. I guess you got to start going fast. But otherwise, you can just raise your hand and ask a question as well. Just trying to look around, see if there's anybody texting. Alright, well, what we'll do is, if you text me a question, I promise to respond. And it'll just be between you and me. Oh! Here we go. How does God's David David's choice of punishment relate to God's mercy versus the mercy of others? Uh, Simply this. Um, You can't, you have no control over the natural world, so if a famine is coming... You don't know what's going to happen, and you can't, there's nothing you can do about that. And you can't trust the mercy of humankind. So to be harried by your enemies for three months, you don't know the extent to which they are going to attack you. The, the, the mercy of God, or let me put it this way, the anger of God you can trust is going to be just proportionate, even if you look at the 70,000 who died and you say, I don't think that's proportionate. Well, you're not God, okay? You've got to trust the character of God in these things that you don't understand. God, the Bible says, is perfectly good and perfectly just and perfectly holy and perfectly righteous. And therefore, if I can put it this way, David put all his chips in the character of God. He bet on the character of God rather than the character of man, rather than nature. That's why. Great questions. 